Well, tonight just a short introduction, a very short introduction to the book of Titus. Most believers are offended by four-letter words. I, I know I am. And there's one that is probably more avoided by us than the rest. And I'm relatively certain that you know the word about which I speak. It's a word that since the time of the Reformation has caused Christians who hold that salvation is by grace through faith alone and Christ alone to shudder. And it's mentioned. And that, well, I wasn't going to say, but that, that word is, I think you're a mature enough audience to hear it. That word is work. I can't say for sure how this became such an offensive word to Christian ears, but I have an idea. In our rush to make certain that the purity of the gospel is maintained, in our zeal to ensure that the gospel not be perverted into a system of faith plus works, many believers have expelled the idea of works from our minds and its utterance from our vocabularies. The study of Paul's letter to Titus, I believe, will change that. The dominant theme in Titus is good works. That is exemplary Christian behavior with an emphasis on its importance in the function of our ambassadorships for Jesus Christ. Nowhere else does Paul more forcefully urge the essential connection between biblical truth and purest morality than in this letter that we're about to study. It's been traditionally understood that Paul wrote Titus shortly after he penned 1 Timothy. Titus was a Greek Gentile. We learned that from Galatians chapter 2, verse 3. He probably became a Christian, probably became a Christian under the influence of Paul, and had become one of the apostles' protégés. Titus had been with Paul since the earliest of Paul's apostolic ministry. He actually accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their mission of mercy to Jerusalem, uh, the Jerusalem church, very early on. And it looks as though Antioch of Syria was Titus's hometown. Titus was also Paul's special representative to the Corinthian church during Paul's third missionary journey. He's the one that carried the severe letter, the letter that we don't have, but it's called the severe letter to the Corinthians. Paul had actually used Timothy early on in that ministry. The Corinthians were a rowdy bunch, and they ate Timothy up and spit him out. And so Paul sent Titus the next time. And they didn't do that to Titus. In addition, he was, again, the leader of a group of men that Paul sent to the churches in Macedonia and, and Achaia, the area around Corinth, to pick up the collection for the poor saints that was being raised for those who were in Jerusalem. So Titus was probably more of a natural leader than his co-worker, Timothy. Timothy was no wimp. I, I hope I presented that to you during our study of First Timothy. But Titus was more of a get-things-done kind of guy. That's why Paul sometimes did use Titus to follow up in places where Timothy had been mistreated. Apparently... No one messed with Titus. While the churches in Crete, where Titus is ministering, did not have the reputation of the churches in Corinth, they did have their problems. And we read in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, that Paul leaves Titus in Crete to set the churches there in order. Tradition has it that Titus died in Crete many years later. His successor, Andreas Cretensis, 
eulogized, eulogized him in the following terms. The, fa- the first foundation stone of the Cretan church, the pillar of the truth, the stay of the faith, the never silent trumpet of the evangelical message, the exalted echo of Paul's own voice. Good words. It's significant that this letter to Titus deals with a church that is in a very difficult place geographically. It's also noteworthy that in this letter, Paul revealed that Christians in in this difficult place should nonetheless practice biblical truth. To show the spiritual power of the church, God selected this most difficult soil. In this way, the Holy Spirit teaches us that the church can fulfill its purpose in the most dark, the most desolate, and the most difficult places on earth. He can do so, even though people in those particular circumstances are in a very trying position themselves. In the United States, we have what we at least used to be called the Bible Belt. I've lived in the Bible Belt most of my life. I've never lived in the northeast part of the United States. I've had friends that ministered up there. This is a difficult ministry. It's different from what it is down here. However, there were hearers when the Word was taught. I have other friends that minister in the northwest part of the United States, which actually is is supposed to be the most agnostic part of our country. No offense, but Washington and Oregon being two very desolate, dry areas. But when the word is presented, it doesn't, as Moses just said, it doesn't come back void. Even in the most desolate places, if we will present the word of God powerfully, correctly, accurately, and in love, people will listen. Because the power is in the Word, it's not in ourselves. The subject of Revelation in this epistle is then the true church of Jesus Christ. And what Paul says about this church is that it should be orderly. We could write, let everything be done decently and orderly all over this letter. That was something Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 14. But it could be written here as well. With regard to order, first, Paul revealed the motive. Why we want order in the church. Why should we not just have a free-for-all every time we meet? Everyone who ever's got something on their mind, just speak it any time you would like to have that spoken. That's what was happening in Corinth, after all. Why should we revere order in the church? Why must the church be orderly? Well, it must be orderly because people must come to a knowledge of the truth that leads to godly behavior. And without order in a church, nobody can hear the word taught. And it doesn't happen here. But occasionally I'll, I'll teach in, in different classes, at various places, even here in Houston. And people will be just jabbering away. And that not only distracts me as a teacher, because I'm wondering, what in the world are you talking about over here? You know, I, I walk over and talk, let's say, sit down at the table with them sometime. But it also distracts everybody else in the class. Because everybody's looking over to see what it is it that they're talking about. That's not orderly. That's not a good learning environment. And you know what else it is? It's selfish. It's thinking what I have to say is more important than what he's got to say right now. Now, it may be important in a lot of other times. I'll, I'll give you that. But it's not more important when somebody is preaching the Word of God. At least if they're preaching it accurately. So there needed to be a behavior change in Corinth. I mean, that was a slip. In Crete, there needed to be a behavior change in Crete. And in order for that to happen, there had to be order in the service itself. You see, the Cretans were liars, Paul tells us. Christians are to live sensibly. Cretans were evil beasts, Paul says. 
And Christians are to live righteously. Cretans were lazy gluttons. Christians are to be godly negatively. Christians do this by denying ungodliness and worldly lust. Paul will teach in chapter 2. Second, with regard to order in the church, Paul revealed the method of church order. How the church can be orderly. It's, it's by the oversight of honorable and strong pastoral leadership. That's how it happens. By the oversight of honorable and strong pastoral leadership. Leadership that knows that, that the Word exists, that has immersed itself in the Word, and then practices the Word. That has immersed itself in the Word, and then practices the Word. The responsibility of the church is not just to have its leaders know the Word and practice the Word, but ultimately that all individuals in the church will know the Word and practice the Word. I love the way Paul puts it in chapter 2, verse 10. He says... He says it this way. He says, we are to adorn the doctrine. We'll get to that in a few weeks. The responsibility of the individual Christian is to maintain good works, he'll tell us in chapter 3. This refers to doing truly noble and beautiful works from the best of motives. So by way of application, this epistle will teach us several things. First, the church will be powerful in the world to the extent that it reveals God's truth. The, the church will be powerful in the world to the extent that it reveals God's truth. Its influence does not lie in methods, but in the timeless truth of the Word of God. Os Guinness has written recently, that the church, in his view, in its rush to be relevant to our culture, has actually become irrelevant to the culture. And one might ask ourselves, why? Why is the church so irrelevant today? I mean, we, we seem to be saying all the right things and doing all the right things and taking all the right surveys and doing opinion polls and going door to door and asking, what, it is, what is it you would like in a church? I've never heard something so silly in all my life. I have never heard something so silly in all my life to, as a method, go door to door. Hi, my name is Bruce. We're starting a new church down the street. We'd just like to know if you attend church. No, I don't. Well, listen, would you mind if I ask you a few questions? Well, sure, go ahead. If you did attend church, when would you like it to start? i like to start at, at noon. Well, no, I actually I need to watch the football game at noon, so we need to start it at 11, but it needs to be finished by 11.30. Okay, I'll make a note of that. What would you like to wear to church if you were to come to, if you, if we were to, if you were to come to our church, what would you like to wear? Well, I want to wear my pajamas. Okay. Well, let's put your pajamas down. Now, listen, this is a little bit more sensitive, but, but would you mind if the pastor taught a, a message from the Word of God? Yeah, I'd mind. I don't like that. I don't want to be told what to do. Okay, well, I'll make a note of that. He doesn't want to be told what to do. How long would you like him to preach? I don't want him to preach at all. Well, if he did preach, how long would you like him to preach? Well, about four minutes. Okay, four minutes. We've got that. What kind of music would you like? Well, I want Led Zeppelin. That's the kind of music I like. He'll say, well, Led, we don't have that in Christianity, but we've got something just almost like it. So you put down Led Zeppelin. And then you design a church that way. I'm not kidding you. That is, that is a, an entire movement in America today. To design a church where the unchurched or the unbeliever would feel comfortable. What we'll learn in Titus is a church that is truly glorifying God while being a place that will be overflowing with love. 
and overflowing with welcome to those who are unchurched or the unbeliever. There should be, there should be this, this slight point of tension between people who are in open rebellion against God himself, against his word, against his plan, and the church that that person decides to attend. For you see, if, there's, if, if there is nothing in that church that makes the unchurched, and I'm saying the unchurched who is in rebellion against God, if there's nothing in that local body that makes them feel even the least bit uncomfortable, I'm telling you that church looks way too much like their living room. And that church is not doing its job. Again, I'm not saying that the church ought to be unloving. Far from it. I mean, I'm saying the polar opposite of that. The church should be loving. But you don't let unbelievers design a worship church for the church of Jesus Christ. That is absolutely, patently absurd. And that is why the church, in its rush to be relevant, has become grotesquely irrelevant. You know what we've forgotten? You know what we left behind somewhere? We wanted to bring everything with us to, to design this kind of entity that everyone would love, and we could draw thousands upon thousands, and that we could draw thousands upon thousands. I'll leave it there. You know what we left behind? The Word. The Word of God. We left it way far behind, forgetting that that's what makes the Christian message powerful. My friend just said that. Whether it's in Africa or whether it's the United States, it's the Word of God that makes it powerful. You know, you know how something can be relevant in the 1700s and in the 1800s and the 1900s and now in this millennium? You know, you know how it can be relevant? Only if it is a timeless truth. That's the only way that it can be relevant in the 1700s and in the 1900s as well. Because methods change. People change. I'm not against being sensitive to the culture. Far from it. We do need to be sensitive to our audiences. Wherever I go, I try to learn something about the audience before I speak to them. You don't want to unnecessarily offend. And you want to know where they are. Several years back, I was in Brazil and preached to an audience that was real big on soccer. So big on soccer that they had just got through having a fight, a knockdown, dragout fight over a soccer game that almost split the church. I didn't know anything about it. So I got up, and no joke, used that. I was using American football, but used it as an illustration about what not to do in church. I just made a joke about fighting over a football game. And that's what they call, that's how they refer to that. And I'm telling you, I I could tell right then that I lost almost all the audience. Afterwards, Tim Lipsy came up and he was just shaking his head. He said, you have no idea what you just did. This church almost split last week over a soccer game. I wish I'd known that because I didn't want to lose half my audience halfway through the presentation because they thought Tim had told me something and I had gone and was preaching to them about that. That was trivial compared to what I really needed to tell them. No, we we need to be sensitive to our culture. There are some things that if you came in and spoke to American audience that would be offensive, that would not be offensive in other places. And some things that we do here that might be offensive there. Certainly we need to be sensitive to our culture. But the culture should never drive Christianity. It should be the other way around. Christianity should be changing the culture. The culture should not be changing Christianity. So one of the things that we will learn by way of application from this letter to to Titus is that the church will be powerful in the world to the extent that it reveals God's truth. That's where the power is going to come. 
Sometimes people say we need another great awakening. We've had, one, we've had a first one and a second one. We need a third one. Well, I'll tell you, the only way we're going to have a third one is if a, a significant number of pastors have the courage to stand up and say, Thus says the Lord. Or to go to a board and say, Listen, I can't do anything for you in 17 minutes a week. You've got to let me teach this congregation more. I had a dear, dear friend that I went to seminary with, Scott Saunders. He's finished up in Oregon now, so I can tell you. He ministered in this desolate place called Oregon, in a little town called Glide. They gave him one service per week, and only a part of that service. And he was never, he was never able to establish his shepherdship, his pastoral leadership over that congregation. He called me and said, what's wrong? I said, you've got to get in front of that congregation more. You've got to teach them. And you know, they wouldn't let him do it. Well, actually, they let him do it for about a month, and they fired him. You know, you know why they fired him? This, this is going to sound absurd. They fired him because he wanted to teach the Word to his congregation. Here's the point. The point is that the power lies in the preaching of the Word. The power does not lie, lie in us as a person. It doesn't lie, lie in our uh, ability to, art, to articulate. It lies in the Word that is put forth, and the Holy Spirit does the work. Same thing my brother just got through saying in his missionary report. Second, second application. I've only got four of these and then we'll finish. Second, it teaches that the church leaders must be people who themselves are under God's rule, under God's truth. We shouldn't select leaders in the church because of any kind of business experience, social influence, or their wealth. It is the spiritual life of a man that is mastered by the truth of God that qualifies him for church leadership. So the leadership should be qualified. Third, this epistle teaches that the power of an overseer, a power of a pastor, is that of God's truth, not that of his office. It's the truth, not the office. No real power comes just because a person has a title. And whether that title is doctor, whether it's reverend, whether it's bishop, whether it's pastor, the power doesn't come in the title. It comes in the word. And it comes, the, the, the personal power comes as a result of the leader's example and his words. And fourth, Titus teaches that the measure of success of a church, the measure of the success of a church is the extent to which the church members fulfill their function in the world. That is not the measure that most of us consider. Titus teaches us that the measure of the success of a church is the extent to which the church members fulfill their function in the world. See, in our, in our country, in our culture, you know what the measure of success is? How many people come? You know, how big the basketball stadium has to be? How many billboards you got? How many radio stations are you on? I'm not saying those are, are irrelevant. Certainly, you want, you want to preach the word to as many people as you can preach it. But the real measure of success is how many people in the church are living lives that are glorifying God. The real measure of success in a church is you individually. Are you growing spiritually, individually? That's how God is going to measure success in a church. You can have 10,000 people, and if they're not growing spiritually, that's not success in a church. You can have 10 people, and if they are growing spiritually, that is a successful church. On the other hand, just because the church only has 10 members doesn't make it spiritual, doesn't make it unspiritual. Just because the church has 10,000 doesn't mean they're spiritual, doesn't mean they're unspiritual. That's not the point at all. The point is actually, it's not the size of the church. It's the individuals within the church. Are you growing in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? And then are you taking that growth 
out into the community, out into the culture, and loving that culture enough to give them the truth. That's a successful church. So finally, the message statement of this text, this book of Titus, this letter to Titus, would read like this. The church, then, must be orderly so that it can fulfill its function, namely, to proclaim God's truth in the world. The church of God should be orderly so that it can fulfill its function, namely, to proclaim God's truth in the world. Well, more on this as we gather again together next week. Heavenly Father, we are so appreciative tonight of the report that we've had from Moses and from Sarah's presence here as well tonight. We thank you for these souls that that have been called to go overseas to, to minister for you, and I do pray for each one of them, both those ministries, that you would go before them with your Holy Spirit and, and open the doors that they need to have open so that they might accurately and and positively and and boldly proclaim your truth. I do pray for a hedge of protection around each, and I do pray that you would supply them with uh, everything that they need to to do their ministry for you. And, and as a church, Father, as we celebrate this Missions Week, I do pray that we would focus on our responsibilities here within the local church and also our responsibilities to a lost and dying world. And we'll ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.